You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello, and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. This is Ross Kenyon. I am the creative editor at Nori's Carbon Removal Marketplace. We are doing something different for this week. We have never before had more than one interview subject, a discussant, interlocutor, whatever adjective, or I guess that's technically a noun you want to use here. We've never had more than one guest on or one group of guests on at a time. But we recently watched the film Gather, which is a documentary about indigenous food sovereignty. I thought it was a really beautiful film, both technically and an important one. I learned a lot. I thought it was a fascinating piece of work. I wanted to share it with our listeners. So if you go to gather.film, the link is in the show notes. You can learn more. It's a film by Sanjay Rawal and others. So today we have three of the subjects of the documentary on talking about their work at the intersection of indigenous foodways, food sovereignty, regenerative agriculture, just very important ways of thinking about food systems moving forward in a way that isn't often brought into conversations about agriculture. I think this is important. I think it's really cool. I also am happy that we're experimenting with the form of the podcast a little bit. So I hope you enjoy and here taking it into the first interview here, I'm starting with Twyla Casador. Twyla is doing very interesting work on teaching and living the foraging lifestyle, the hunting lifestyle as much as she can. Hope you enjoy. Here it goes. Hi, Twyla. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Thanks so much for for coming to chat with me. I really enjoyed the film. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure. How did you become involved with Gather? How did this process unfold for you? It originally was a film that was focusing on an Apache chef named Nephi Craig and the type of work that he does in his surrounding. A lot of it has to do with reintroducing traditional food and, and he's a high-end chef pretty much. So taking this traditional food and really doing beautiful work with it. But for myself, I so happened, they're like, we want to know, you know, about the food that where it came from, where Nephi's food came from. That's where I came in. And when they asked to film here in San Carlos, I never imagined it was a large film. I thought it was just a regular public film that's going to be made for the community. And we do have other films that, I mean, other film crews that do smaller films for the community. So I was pretty much thinking, okay, this is a small film until the film crew came. And I was like, oh my gosh, who are all these people? (laughs) (laughs) But they let us be us. So I was really happy there was, um, you know, who's able to let us share our voices in this film. For my, my end, yes, that's how I end up on the film. That's great. I'm happy to hear all of that. You feature prominently in scenes of hunting and foraging and uh, cooking of the, this gathered food. What is it exactly that you are hunting? And that, that segment is, is very memorable to me. Okay, it's a white throat desert wood rat. And it's one of the several species that grow in this region. And it's one of those that, one of the wood rats that don't really contract hantavirus. Hmm. So that's one thing that wasn't specified during that time. 
and it's a winter meat. It's not a seasonal meat. It's only meant to hunt in the winter. So it's about a one pounder of meat. Wow. It sounds like you're quite involved with Nephi and um, maybe you're involved with procuring some of the ingredients that he cooks with. Is there an ongoing uh, relationship in that way? No, it's just educating. They grow, their community basically has some of the same forage food that we have. And some of our desert food they don't have, but it's pretty much common knowledge. So for us, it's just sharing, making sure that knowledge is continued to be shared throughout the communities and throughout the different generations that are to come. It's just constant learning, just repetition of the same food. Is that how you see your work overall and its importance is in passing this, this wisdom down and practicing it yourself and, and teaching? I always tell people our work is very important and it also connects back to our identity connects back to the land. I always reference to the five seeds, which is language, song, ceremony, prayer, and food waste. And we carry these five seeds. And me handing it to the next generation, of course, they're not going to carry the five seeds. They're going to carry some of those seeds. So you're looking at this generation, how many people have those seeds, really? Not too many people carry all five seeds anymore. So what we want to do is reintroduce a lot of those knowledge back into the community openly not to you know not to like it's not written it's shared knowledge in the community and we just want to make sure that knowledge continues to be shared because it really referenced back to us as indigenous people us as apache and back to our creation story so everything comes from the very beginning and it always continues so we don't want to lose that knowledge we don't want to lose those songs and those prayers and those ceremonies throughout time so to me, this, the, the work is very important because it ties to the ceremony, it ties to the land, it ties to the body, mind, and spirit of an individual. Were any of these these sort of five pathways that you single out, were they at risk at various points of being forgotten or, or lost? And are they coming back now? Um, yes, mostly during, well, it actually did start when, when the reservation began. And people were removed from their land, the landscape. People were put into boarding schools. People were forbidden to do ceremony. People were actually killed when their people were shot practicing their religion. And it became to a point where it was uh, illegal to have ceremonies. So if you had ceremonies, it was dangerous for you. So through time, that slowly came back. And thankfully, a lot of that knowledge was not lost. And so... You're also looking at even religion, like Christianity. Christianity will say, oh, you are worshiping the devil. Somebody always comes up with, we worship one God. We pray to one God. And when they talk about freedom of religion, yet they're denying indigenous people their freedom of religion. And it makes me think, okay, we talk about freedom of religion in this country, but yet we're not, we were stripped away from our freedom to practice these ceremony to practice our language to go and harvest you know and you were limited if you tried to leave the boundary you were shot and killed so a lot of people had to deal with a lot of the transition transformation of where we are today so we're thankful for what we do have oh yeah there was just one more thing and there's also a time in 1960s when agent orange was sprayed on our reservation throughout the riverbeds 
And that's where basically everybody almost lived, pretty much lived along the rivers because people used the, dependent on the water for the farming. A lot of people have contracted cancer. There's a long-term effect of that here on our reservation. And it hasn't been really um, justified, hmm. but people, it's just reteaching people what they can plant, how to plant a different way of educating people, doing raised beds, you know, not using the same ground that the, the contaminant waters have affected. Many of our basket weavers have died from it because they're out there in the rivers collecting the materials and they use, we all use our mouth. That's why I got messed up teeth, but we all use our mouth to split the things. And there was a time when my relatives, a little bit older than me, would run under the plane and they thought it was cool. They didn't know it was Agent Orange being sprayed under and they would chase the planes. Going through that and people not no longer foraging because of the, were the areas that were sprayed and people thought they were getting sick because Christianity said they were worshiping whatever. So in a sense, it kind of played into that, not knowing that it wasn't that, it was just Agent Orange being sprayed throughout the, our waterways. Agent Orange, as I understand it, just kills plants, right? It's a defoliant. Do you remember the rationale or why this happened? Oh, they believed it was good for our river bits. And so they decide to spray between 8 to 15 miles of our riverways, our waterways. And they say it would help minimize the growth of some invasive species. But they overlooked the fact that people lived along the river, people farmed along the river. A lot of people in the 60s didn't sleep in houses. They slept outside. So your clothes are hanging outside, your dried food are outside, your dried forage food were laying out on tables that were being sprayed. People did not understand the harm that this was causing. And plus, you can't blame them because we didn't know. People didn't know then. They just knew it was something the government or the agency said is good for this water. Wow, that is terribly tragic. And it's, it's, it's shocking to hear. Your work on foodways, Twyla, I find really interesting. And I'm wondering if Seemingly where the Apache reservations are now is within where um, your people have lived for a very, very long time, right? It's broadly in the same region. Yes. So these, these foodways were probably better preserved potentially than indigenous people who were moved very far away to new ecosystems. And those foodways are seemingly much more potentially lost, lost to time. Is that a correct way to understand it or, or not really? In some sense, yes, but you got to remember the Apaches is actually many bands brought together throughout all of the southeastern portion of Arizona, part of New Mexico, Mexico. And they were brought here to San Carlos, 1.8 million acres. That time you were only placed on 40 acres. So in 40 acres for 20 years, and that was an encampment of 20 years of being, um, how you say, a prisoner of war. And when some of my relatives went back to where their lands were. They were taken away by farmers and ranchers and they were forbidden to go there. Either they, they suffered other things. But it was a complete transformation and readjusting. And what's beautiful about people here is the resiliency, regardless of the situation, was the ability to adapt to the situation, ability to transform and learn the other types of traditional foods that were taught to them and it was a shared knowledge between different bands not just one group 
and different bands would have this shared knowledge and that's how people were able to support themselves. So right now at this point, we have access to those areas and food. So yeah, we have a large amount of people. Um, we have a large land, 1.8 million acres and there is a lot of food here, yes, but it's not enough to support the community, but it is enough for people to go and forage from in seasonal all the way from spring all the way into fall. So you always have uh, different varieties of food growing on the landscape, but it's just getting there. A lot of it takes community, commuting and traveling and patience, a lot of patience. <laughs> I can only imagine. I suspect that many of the people listening do not have foraging or hunting as a part of how they eat, you know, even a relatively small portion of the food that they consume. Why do you think that's important? Mostly it, it gears towards food sovereignty, the ability to provide for yourself without being dependent on a government system, mm. like the commodity, these food stamp, but being able to go out and support yourself in a realist, holistic way that actually nourishes you, not mentally, also physically, but also spiritually. And it's all in combination where you can go to a grocery store. Yeah, you can buy these things and you can cook equivalent to what this is, but it takes, it doesn't have that same holistic meaning of when you're out there foraging and being out with the land, being one with the land. There's something about whether it's food stamps or whether it's buying in a store, it seems disconnected. I don't think people really care that much how it got to them so long as it got to them. And for you, there's a, there's a much deeper spiritual pursuit that's tied up in how we interact with the land rather than a grocery store shelf or something like that. And that's where the imbalance in life is, is because people have disconnected completely from the land, pretty much. A very small amount of people are still, you know, maintaining that uh, relationship with the land. So when you look at the natural disasters throughout the globe, in some cultures, they believe, you know, a lot of it is because people have lost that connection with the land and their respect for the land and does have effect on all life. How should someone who is not indigenous or, or not connected to the land in this way, do you have any advice for how they might learn from your practices and, and your thinking? Is there anything that they can, they can do on their end? I always tell people support indigenous farmers in your local areas, indigenous growers, producers, people like that, that need that support that don't have that support. For one, I always tell people, we come from all different cultures, all of us do. And when Mother Earth, we walk on her every day, which is Nigostan, which is, which is the Earth. She don't see color. She don't see race. She hears every heartbeat that walks on her. And I tell people, we're all connected in some form, but a lot of people don't look at it that way because when we walk, we don't go and, mom, you know, we don't do that. We actually walk. You see people walk and run. You hardly see many people stomping on her. In a funny way, I always say they respect her, not knowing that they are respecting her by the way they walk on her and run and do all these activities because she's actually listening to everybody I would say it's her heartbeat and she just loves everybody 
equally, regardless of how we say, yes, indigenous people went through tragic things. Every culture pretty much went through tragic things to come to this point in life. But we have to support each other still and continue to help each other to heal and move forward. And that will make life better, but not to continue to go backwards because how we say is we follow the sun, then the sun doesn't go backwards. The sun is always moving forward. Beautiful sentiment. If someone wanted to learn more or support your work directly beyond watching Gather, is there something that you might recommend that they participate in or, or do? Oh, yeah, grant fundings. That's one great thing. Yes, there's only two people that do the same work that I do. That's myself and another person as an anthrobotanist, and we're like a two-man crew. Looking at long-term funding is very hard. So when we apply for grants, we don't meet those grant guidelines, mostly because a lot of them are specifically targeting clinical studies and they require numbers. For mine is, okay, 20 years from now, this one person is, oh, I remember we went and got onions and I got them with my kids and we cooked them. That's success. But that's going to take 20 years. And, and I don't think grant people are going to wait 20 years to hear that story from an individual. And taking young people out. Okay, I'm going to share this briefly. Taking a young group of people out. We're doing a gluster hunt also. And these are young girls that I take out. After the whole process, the young girl went home. Grandma talked to her. And grandma already knew where she went. So she, she grandma told her, where did you go? She goes, I went with Twyla. And she goes, what did you guys do? Because we, we, we went to go hunt some glistra. And grandma goes, you did? Because she knows what glistra is. And grandma says, um, okay, did you kill it? She goes, yeah. Then she goes, did you eat it? And she goes, yeah. Then her grandma says, how did it taste? I said, it actually tastes like, you know, the same thing everybody says, it tastes like chicken. <laughs> <laughs> and so... Grandma, I always go to this reference, like grandma went to this shelf, sitting there dusty for decades. We ate it like this. We used to cook it like this. We used to hunt it here. All these stories that have been sitting away for decades because it was shamed upon, considered that it was poor people's food, came back to life. This person was embarrassed or not embarrassed, but she was shamed for it consider as poor people's food. So she put it on a shelf, won't talk about it. So through time, this is like many decades gone by. You should see this old person and this young kid. So much life came back to them, to this old, older person, be able to share the stories. And it's like, wow, this is, you know, she was so happy. She was so happy. So I tell people there are many stories like that with many different people with food or whatever it is that is put aside because society said it didn't belong in our place and society had a whole different view of wealth and wealth for me is just to be happy I have food I got a place to sleep I'm happy and for other people it's you know y'all would say how do they call those people the Jones oh yeah don't compete with the Jones <laughs> Yeah, keeping up with the Joneses, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that's where keeping up with the Jones and a lot of people tend to lose lose a lot in 
this realistic happy life when they start running into that competition. <laughs> That's certainly true. Are you seeing a lot more of this beyond just Apache? Is this overall a trend that you're noticing among indigenous people and really feeling like it's okay to celebrate what you call poor people's food or like these food ways having new life being breathed into them? Is that something that is happening generally? Well, I don't call it poor people's food. I say it's what colonization called it, but as we called it food, you know, indigenous <laughs> yeah. food Fair enough. And, and colonization decide to say, oh, label it, which they love to label everything. <laughs> but it's an awakening and so many people, especially young people are awakening up and understanding the importance of that connection. And I feel that this is a really beautiful, I can't say a movement, it's an awakening that's happening throughout globally. It really is happening. And it's, it's reconnecting back with the land. And it just feels good because one day when I'm not here, at least I know that there are many more people that feel like I do. Is there anything that we didn't cover, Twyla, that you might like to talk about? Oh, yeah, we're going back to grant funding. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Feel, feel free to. <laughs> Anyways, Western Apache Diet Project out in San Carlos, Arizona, with the San Carlos Apache Tribe. And it's, you know, funding source, long term funding source is what we are looking for. If you're listening, well, we have a lot, a lot of listeners out there. I wouldn't surprise me if someone had connections in this way. Please check that out. There are links in the show notes to everything that we referenced. Thanks so much for being here, Twyla. Okay, thank you. And then you do have my email, so they can you can link that in there also. Be happy to. Okay, yeah. enjoy your rest of your day. And thank you for letting me be a part of your conversation. All right. Thank you, Twyla. So happy to have you on the show. Moving over now to Nephi Craig, who is featured in Gather as well, speaking about his work in fine dining in the world of chefs and high cuisine, and also rediscovering his roots and really trying to feature that prominently, cooking food for his people, maybe giving up on the Michelin star dream a little bit and trying to do something different with food in a very valuable way. I can't wait to try out Cafe Gajot at some point. This pandemic ever allows me and I would love to go back to Arizona drive out to the White Mountain Apache Reservation and uh, give it a peek out there. All right, here is our time with Nephi Craig. Today, I have with me Nephi Craig, chef, culinary activist, writer, restaurateur of Cafe Gajot of the White Mountain Apache Tribe Reservation in Arizona and the executive chef there too. You're involved in rehabilitation work too for substance abuse. You've done everything. Your bio is fascinating. Seems like you keep pretty busy. <laughs> yeah, I keep pretty busy. I, I enjoy the work. You know, I, I like I say, I'm a, I try to stay a student of the experience. Student of the experience. Yeah, you caught my eye in Gather Film, which is what this episode is about, various subjects of that documentary. How did you end up being in Gather? They approached me about three years ago. I believe they were searching individuals and, um, you know, on the internet, when you, you look up native chefs or native cuisine or whatever, you find me in the American Southwest, uh, among others, you know, and I, I, there's a long body of work and articles that go back before, you know, 2019, 
So it, it just kind of, you know, it just kind of stood out, I guess. And they they approached me and initially asked me, and, and initially I was very hesitant to participate just because I know from experience also that, you know, sometimes film crews and uh, production teams come in to try to uh, Columbus us, you know what I mean? Like discover us and spin their narrative on our survivance and, um, you know, not really portray us in, in the most accurate way. So I was very hesitant at first. Wow, that's that's quite a thing to have to balance uh, an additional layer to all the anxiety that goes into filmmaking or having people <laughs> follow you with camera. How do so I'm I'm media. How do I avoid Columbusing you in this way? What what's like the correct way to approach a subject like this? Well, I, I think um, just uh, um, just approaching it with an with an open curiosity and sensitivity. I think um, I think uh, every time I. I speak with others or teach, I always ask people to take an honest look at their own, their own personal ethics and, um, you know, how it's packaged and represented, right? Because there's a number of things that I could say that if you disagreed with as a facilitator, you could choose to edit out. And a lot of times that can, those can be reflections of our personal biases. You know what I mean? So it's up to, it's up to you as an individual. The film gather as the production, as we agreed and began to move forward, it was very organic, and um, Sanjay and the rest of the production team were very um, uh, respectful and cordial about all of the footage that we captured. Sometimes it, felt, it was so organic that it didn't even feel like we were in production. Um, I had been involved in other productions, whether it was culinary or cultural, where you know things are kind of staged and scripted and that kind of thing. None of that happened with Gather. So it was very um, organic and just a couple questions here and there, but for the most part, just following through our work. It feels that way too. It feels intimate in a good way. It didn't feel very stagey. I've certainly seen documentaries where it feels like, they're like, can you redo this again and say this while you're doing that? And you're like, okay. To an audience, this reads <laughs> like something that was contrived. Yeah. So I'm glad to hear that didn't happen for, for you. Yeah, um, the responsibility of producing content like that is something that I think about a lot. And the way that I've chosen to go is to do interviews somewhat naturalistically. Like I try to just record a conversation and not change much of it at all. There's sometimes we'll, we'll clean things up for clarity, but that's mostly on the hosts. And I try not to edit the words of people who are speaking too much unless I take something out of what I said or one of my colleagues say. And then it makes what they say not make any sense. But for the most part, it seems safest and most honest to just let the tape roll. But I guess if you're shooting hundreds or thousands of hours of video, that really becomes harder, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> also, too, like uh, in the intro uh, where, where you mentioned culinary activists, mm -hmm. I don't really see myself as that. Oh, I think it's okay. I think it sounds cool. You know what I mean? It sounds cool. It's a badass hashtag, and it makes people want to like, ooh, what's going on with this guy? You know. But um, in in reality, I I kind of think I'm more of a, a just a on the ground practitioner. I've been doing this for so long. I've seen a lot of the trends come and go. I've seen a lot of characters become notable, and you know, build platforms for themselves, and then then kind of move back into the shadows. And it's it's kind of um, so for me, there is themes, I guess, of activism so to some of the, the word choice and some of the, the actual work. I don't know if it's above or below activism in its, you know, stereotypical sense. 
but uh, I def- it is definitely action-based. It, my, my paradigm has really shifted since I gone into the mental health area as, as opposed to just strictly hospitality and hotel work and fine dining to where now it's actually dealing with um, people and trying to save their lives. You know what I mean? So it's really on the cusp of that life and death decision and recovery work for me. So I try to be respectful and not be too um, antagonistic with those terms or themes. You know what I mean? I think so. Thanks for for correcting me on it. Maybe in your own words, how do you see, I think it's probably best actually, if you just tell the abbreviated version of your life's work and your story, since it is so, there's so many angles to it. And seemingly, at least to an outsider, uh, your life feels very coherent to me. Like everything sort of connects in a really interesting way. And that might just be me connecting dots that in your life, you're just like, my life is chaos. I just do the best that I can. (laughs) But, But it seems like there is something like, you're striving to, it does feel like it fits together in a really neat kind of way. Yeah. And my culinary journey, somehow it has all been able to uh, be woven together into the work I do today. Uh, when I first went into culinary school, I wanted to, to, uh, I looked at it like a fine art, like I was going to study uh, woodworking or, or, you know, music or dance or sculpture. So I wanted to go classical, right? Like I wanted to learn, if I was going to play music, I'd play classical music, right? Or get that understanding. So I went into a culinary school and I, I gravitated more towards classical French cuisine just because of all the documented history and how much it's really changed and altered American cuisine, um, which by the way, is very, very much maturing today. And so that early kind of mindset was, I want to learn, I want to put in my hours, do my, get my repetitions, you know, get proficient in this style but on the same time, I also wanted to do something with Native American cuisine because, you know, I, I had never even heard of any other Native chefs, but I knew they had to be out there. I remember when I was a kid seeing some of our, like our ski resort, um, they used to see um, at the ski resort up there, they had this hotel that I actually circled all the way around and came back and was the head chef of. But back in the 80s, I used to see carving stations with people with their tall hats, right? Uh-huh. I used to kind of, it didn't really, wasn't interested in professional cooking then, but it stood out, you know, it stood out in my mind. The, um, the toke made an impression on you? Yeah, for some reason. It's like, what the heck, you know, and he's carving <laughs> a big old slab of meat, you know. But food has just kind of always been there for me, in a way. After culinary school, I was lucky to work for a really great chef, uh, Chris Olson, um, at the Country Club at DC Ranch. And then um, I trained and worked uh, there. It's just kind of that mentorship story where a mentor can recognize what the mentee can't see. You know what I mean? Mm. And so there under their, their tutelage there, I was able to really kind of develop some of my skills and I made a lot of mistakes. You know what I mean? I made a lot of mistakes and as a young wild skateboarding kid from the res and I did well under pressure and structure, but I still wanted my, you know, late night party freedom and that, that paid consequences for that. But I would stay there five years, um, almost five years. And I would, would, from the time I was in culinary school, my favorite instructor, who was the meanest, you know what I mean? Like the meanest and most strict or the toughest one. He worked at a place in our city called Mary Elaine's at the Phoenician. And all the war stories he would tell and the discipline, he had sample menus of that really classical French place. It really kind of, if I was already gravitating towards classical French cuisine, I really gave this mystique. So every year from 1998, 99, 2000, 2001, I, I went there and applied like sometimes two, three times a year. And every time I went there, I was like, you know, they would, 
if I even got an interview, it was like, yeah, right, kid. You know, it's kind of that attitude. What I saw in the, the sous chefs and the chefs there, when I, when I actually got to hop in that elevator, go up to the top of the resort and go into that really opulent setting and see the kitchen, what I saw in, in the, sous, the sous chefs and the head chefs, what I saw in their eyes was that same steely-eyed look of like um, Arizona uh, Highway Patrol officers or Marine Corps drill instructors, you know? That's what I saw. Because I'd been, you know, as a young wild kid, I was in a juvenile program in California called Devil Pups, where they send you to Camp Pendleton for like two weeks. You know what I mean? I was, I was a little young Marine, you know, for like two weeks with kids from all over L.A., Cali, and now some of those, some Navajo kids there. You know what I mean? Hmm. But uh, I rode in a police van to get there. And, you know, <laughs> and, wow. and I was like six, I was uh, 14. And my dad was a Marine. Uh, my, my, my uncle was a recon Marine, both Vietnam combat vets. Wow. My grandfather was a Navajo code talker. So I grew up kind of around family of Marine Corps discipline, you know what I mean? And pride and honor and all that Semper Fi stuff, you know what I mean? And so when, when I got to Camp Pendleton, I was like, wow, this is, this is pretty amazing. And, you know, as a young kid, I, I realized how tough I was coming from the res. You know, I could hike the mountains. I could do the obstacle courses and all that kind of stuff. And I'm not a big guy, you know what I mean? But the drill instructors, their, their steely-eyed look and the discipline they had, that really resonated with me. And as I would, you know, leave that and ultimately become an adult and, you know, have to interact with cops as a skateboarder, <laughs> you know, and, and for other reasons, <laughs> I, would, I would see that same discipline look in their eyes. And uh, I, I wanted that. And so when I met those chefs at Mary Elaine's, I was like, holy crap, chefs can be like this, you know, like, so that's what I kind of saw. And it made me want to come back and work there. It's one of those things where I knew a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy who got me a, a stage where you go and go inside a kitchen and you're like a fly on the wall, picking herbs or doing whatever, you know, and you're just there to observe. At the end of my two day stage, the head chef um, approached me and offered me a position. And I, you know, I, I had to control my my emotions, you know what I mean? Inside, I was screaming and everything, but calmly, I was sitting in the dining room like, yes, chef, I'll take it. Were you like and, uh, prep kitchen or garde manger or where did they put you? I was going to be on the meat station. It was one of the oh. busiest stations. This is Arizona, right? Yeah. And I was going to be on the entremetier. There's a saucier and an entremetier. And I was going to be the saucier's partner. And it's such a big operation. It's a real classical kitchen. That is the brigade system. There's the meat station, fish station. Uh, hot apps, garmage, pastry, right? And there's two people on each station. And it's a huge, it's a huge team. You know what I mean? And I didn't plan to, I didn't go there applying for a job. My chef that I had worked for, for like, you know, five years, let me make all these mistakes, fired me, rehired me, you know, invested time and training. I didn't know. He didn't know. He was like, all right, man, you can get a stage. That's awesome. You know what I mean? Lucky break. Woohoo. Come back and keep working for us, you know? <laughs> but yeah. It turned out I got that uh, job opportunity and without even hesitating, I said, yes, chef, I'll take it. And then he's like, when can you start? And I was like, tomorrow, <laughs> you know, and he's like, no, no, do it right. Take at least two weeks, give two weeks notice a month if you can, and then come start with us. Um, let me know and start with us then. So I didn't know, you know, that that was that code of training and respect for your mentor. So I went and I, I reported back the, the following day to work and let my chef know. He was like, hey, man, how was the stage? And I was like, man, it was awesome. I sat down. I was like, hey, chef, 
they offered me a job and I took it. Did you break <laughs> his heart? Was he okay? Oh man, I, I don't know. I, I haven't, we haven't really processed what that experience was like. You know what I mean? It was just kind of a, okay. All right. Well, good. Good for you. It's like, well, we got a real busy day today and blah, blah, blah. we moved on. Mm-hmm. But um, a couple of weeks later, we went to this function and you had the opportunity to, uh, um, you know, kind of maybe some time passed or whatever. And, you know, he's like, you know what? If I was in the same position as you were, I would have done the same thing, you know? So I think it was some initial, you know, because like for me as a chef now, I've trained a lot of cooks and I've had people, you know, make similar decisions or make similar moves. I've had people on my teams do similar things, whether it was for negative or positive reasons and leave abruptly. And that put a real strain on the team. You know what I mean? Mm. So back then I didn't understand that, but now I do. That's how I got into that. I was at the fine dining country club level, which was, you know, awesome and amazing for everything they were doing. Then I was catapulted to the top of my game that I didn't even really expect. You know what I mean? Yeah. The Phoenician is a very fancy resort in Scottsdale or Paradise Valley right yeah yep. yeah um mary elaine's at the time was like one of the only five star five diamond properties in the in the valley and mm-hmm. like one of like 12 on the west coast oh, um okay. wow you know this looking back if if the michelin guide was in america back then it would probably had at least two stars maybe three because it was so freaking opulent wow. um it was it was and it, i guess i got what i wanted it was it was like fucking boot camp <laughs> you know <laughs> I thought I was a strong line cook at the country club, but I got into Mary Lane's and it became psychological and spiritual. You know, it became tactile and and philosophical because I saw cooks cooking without touching food. You know, they would sit and write menus. They would say, all right, we want to create this, this tasting menu to convey this message about regional rustic French cuisine in America today. You know what I mean? And they'd sit down, put stuff together. And I'm, I'm the middleman in that process, right? I'm the practitioner. I'm executing the chef's vision, but I'm the here because my my partner on the meat station had just spent like, I think three or four years with Thomas Keller at the French Laundry. So he was kicking my ass every day, you know? Big deal, yeah. In like uh, the family tree, American gastronomy, you know, I'm one of the branches to those hardcore dudes. Like my chef at Mary Lane's, he had just, uh, he was, he worked with Daniel Ballou in New York for 20 years, something like that. I don't know, 15 years. And uh, the partner that trained me was with Thomas Keller. So, you know, that that's a part of my, my training background. But anyway, I, I was, I was able to work there and um, be there, you know, over, over a year. And it was really difficult, very stressful, and it was very uh, intense. And after about, you know, three to six months after I survived the hazing and, you know, the intensity and all that stuff, I was able to, um, you know, realize that, hey, man, I'm, I'm a machine, you know, like I'm really organized. I'm, I'm really strong, you know, and I, I was able also to realize my weaknesses, too. But what I always say about getting to Mary Elaine's at the Phoenician is that when I got to Mary Elaine's and I was on my on the meat station the first night. You know, one of the one of my items on the menu was um, buffalo tenderloin, and it was being it was uh, the classical beef turnitos Rossini was being reinterpreted with buffalo from the Great Plains. And next to me on the fish station was a, a classical salmon roulade being reinterpreted with Quinault River salmon from the Quinault tribes. And so, right off the bat, there's two very powerful indigenous 
foods that are sacred foods to the Great Plains, people of the Great Plains, and to the salmon people of the Northwest. And of course, all the other cultivars, you know, chocolate chili, corn, bean, squash, all these other things I had already been studying on my own were throughout the menu. So that was a very powerful validation of how native foods could be used and also that philosophical approach to creating a tasting menu to create a culinary narrative of sorts. So I knew then that something greater had to be possible. How it was going to be carried out, I had no freaking idea, you know, but <laughs> it had to be done. That's just what my heart said, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And so where'd you where'd you go from there? How did you it seems like yeah, this like high cuisine, fine dining experience, it sort of set you back to your your roots almost. It took you to France intellectually and then you're coming back home. Yeah. And you see, when when I was there at on the line working with with the team there and, and I became a saucier myself, I'm in charge of the meat station and cooking the meat, no longer doing just the vegetables. And I was training my replacement, you know, because the saucier cooks the meat and does all the, the sauces and and on that station, then Antermetier cooks all the side, the garnishes and the vegetables. And so I had um, been promoted to to be in the Sassier of my meat station, and I've trained my replacement. And so in that process, uh, I decided that, or my son, my first son was going to be born. And so I wanted to do something that would mirror the the sentiment that I had grown up around, around food. There were nights on the line where it would just be so intensely busy. I mean, we're doing 200 covers of tasting menus and a la carte stuff, and it's just crazy. And I would put my hands on the cutting board just for a second and look down this long uh, line and see these, you know, at least seven different uh, line cooks that are all chefs in their own right, just pumping out amazing, beautiful dishes in this controlled chaos. And I would get this lump in my throat and I would think, what's my auntie eating tonight? What's my uncle eating tonight? What are they doing at home? You know, I would, I would, and then I would snap back into my, my, my cooking but I would have these kind of inklings that I was out of my environment, but I was, I needed to be there. You know what I mean? And so when my, my son was born in 2003 and that's when I decided to, um, I had felt like I had gotten enough training and exposure and that something had to be done with native foods that I left there and decided to start the native American culinary association. And I had wished and dreamed to work at the French Laundry or to work at Danielle in New York. But in doing this and studying Native foods, I felt like my culinary heroes didn't have what I needed to know or understand. I needed to go back and talk with grandmas and aunties and moms and brothers and people that were on the res. And so that's kind of what I did. I just became a freelance independent contractor to to do this work. And the field it was and still is wide open. Um, when I developed the concept and began promoting it and talking about it, it drew me away from fine dining, but it opened doors in public health, education, cultural revitalization, diabetes management, prevention, you know, this creative work with adults and youth and elders. Uh, opened up the the doors of agriculture. So it really showed me how powerful and necessary the work was. And this is like 2003, you know what I mean? 2004. From there, from like 2000, 
2004 till 2008, I would just, you know, work nonstop. I'd have part-time chef jobs and whatnot, but my heart was in the work of developing Native American cuisine to really reflect who we are. And um, the dream of doing a three-star Michelin restaurant began to erode, you know, the the dream of doing a five-star, five-diamond, opulent, luxurious Native American restaurant began to kind of erode or transform as I would travel to res to res or city to city and confront and experience things like social injustices, racism. I'd encounter those in my, and directly or indirectly encounter loss and health disparities on the ground. And, you know, realize that the need outweighed the desire for fine dining. And if I was going to be realistic about my approach to cooking, it had to have this really kind of authentic health component what that health component would look like, I, I, it would constantly evolve and shapeshift. So it's very much requires me to stay a student of the experience and, and go with the pulse of communities or the pulse of whatever field I might be called into as it relates to food. So that's kind of how it's kind of come full circle. And that this whole time, man, I talk about it in the movie Gather, I'm dealing with substance abuse and chemical dependency. I'm uh, fortunately or unfortunately, I'm, I'm, I'm high functioning. Even when I'm chemically dependent, I can still pull things off, but it would also do some damage along the way. And so it wasn't until coming back stateside and, and pretty much being unemployable. And plus the, the recession had, you know, it was 2008, everything had tanked and it was very tough for me to find a job. And I handed in my resume in, city, in the city and I got all these amazing places and world-renowned travel. And people look at me like, yeah, right. You know? <laughs> this brown dude, you know, this brown guy from the res is this really crazy looking resume. That's just my assumption. But so I, I wasn't, I was, I was um, relying on the independent work for a long time. And in 2009, my father was diagnosed with cancer and we, he ended up dying of cancer in 2010. And my dad was one of my biggest supporters next to my mom, and he was also in recovery, and he died sober as well. But my dad was like Superman to me, man. He was, like I said, he was a Marine Corps dude. He was a cop. He was a PO. You know, he was a great dad. He was a singer and songwriter. Um, he was a humorist, and he was an advocate for recovery in Native communities. And when I saw my father wither away and, and made his demise because of cancer, it broke my heart in ways that I could not anticipate. It challenged everything that I thought was sacred from organized religion to cultural themes and prayers and ceremony. And, you know, all the, all the, the religious or cultural spiritual paraphernalia, none of it could stop mortality. And, you know, it was really tough. And so it wasn't until encountering the loss of my dad that it really, um, really kind of had me take a really hard look at life. And I would eventually get clean in 2011. And, you know, after about almost nine months or 10 months of being in despondency and spinning out and just being worried about losing my own life, that, you know, I finally got sick and tired of being sick and tired, man. And when I decided to put it all away at a sentiment from many of my previous attempts came back to my mind was that a, a drowning man will grab a sword. And I didn't know how I was going to live this life. I didn't even know if it would be possible, but
but I just knew that I was desperate enough and I was drowning and I would grab anything that was coming my way. And, and it was, it was going to be recovery. And so through that, man, the, the process of grief and loss and trying to be self-determined and relying on the food, I always knew, man, that food would be there for me, that the skills I possessed, whether no matter where I was going to be, I would be able to at least have a job and at least be able to eat. And I felt like my work ethic could be a part of my reconstruction in my new life. And, and it turned out to be that. But I was also fortunate to begin working at our tribe ski resort on the White Mount Apache tribe at sunrise. And shortly uh, during and after my dad's demise. So when I lost my dad, um, this big gap in my life was there. But being in the mountains, in our sacred mountains, working with a team of all White Mountain Apaches. And even though it was this old hotel is like hot tub time machine, you know, hadn't changed since the eighties and stuff, you know, it was the most radical and awakening moment in my culinary pathway that taught me so much humility and creativity because we had absolutely almost no money. We really barely got by and it was an old kind of, you know, rundown kitchen. It was all disorganized, but um, I was able to teach from scratch cooking and grow it over nine years. And, you know, all along the way, just making these these realizations and being on the ground, dealing with other, uh, my staff members, issues with substance abuse or seeing people come in with black eyes or blue eyes or people calling out because of the health disparities on the reservation. And it was seeing, despite all of those, the high turnover and learning more about themes like structural violence, lateral violence, learning about decolonization. You see, man, it was the foods that brought me to a decolonization, not academia. It was the foods that brought me to indigeneity and social justice work. And it was the foods that brought me to those doorsteps, not, not academia. I'm sure I had to rely on articulation from our academia, but it was my teams and the mountains and being forced into a creative environment where we had to be resourceful, that it really began to shape and mold. And my sobriety, man, I was, I was seeing shit different. I'm nothing like my fine dining counterparts, but I have the same discipline and qualities that, that make us. And we are nothing like my fine dining counterparts, but we have so much of the same qualities. And it's the human experience that's the most important in the process of food and cooking. It's the reconstructive aspect and the spiritual evolution of people and multiply that by a team. It's so powerful. And so like, it just made sense. You know, I turned on opportunities to work on the East Coast and the West Coast and larger operations because the foods, you know, with, with the clarity of sobriety, they were communicating a different message now. My heart was softer. My heart was ready for these messages. My heart and spirit were maybe finally in tune enough to hear the promptings of the mountains and the ingredients, you know? And so the foods were basically communicating this message that it needed to be some kind of something different. If I were to go to Washington, D.C. or L.A. or Seattle and open a fine dining restaurant like I'd always dreamed and I could probably really do and be really successful at, I wouldn't be cooking for my people anymore. 
I wouldn't be cooking for White Mountain Apaches and Navajos anymore. I wouldn't be working with a team of all White Mountain Apaches from the same reservation neighborhood as me. I'd be cooking for non-natives in the city. So I kind of felt it was kind of sad to realize that if I were to leave and open up something off the reservation, I would be being more performative than revolutionary. I would be more performative than actually impacting change on a real micro social level in my community. I'd basically be like a puppet. You know what I mean? I'd be like, oh, there's that good Indian, the one that does good and he's not so mean. And he's the one that's, you know, you got to go eat his food. And it's so amazing. But then again, like those moments in Mary Elaine's, what's my grandma eating tonight? What's my auntie eating tonight? And then I wouldn't be able to transmit this healing experience and reconstructive experience that I had personally witnessed in myself with those that needed it the most. The historical validation of our ancestral intelligence, the transmission of indigenous identity through cultivars and foods and group dynamics, the togetherness of cooking and ceremony. I couldn't be a part of that if I left and went to the big city. And so all of those things were being kind of, those were growing in my heart and mind the longer I stayed with in Sunrise. See, I, I took that job at Sunrise thinking I would only be there one or two years and put that executive chef position on my belt. You know what I mean? On my resume. Then I'd bounce back to the city and get my shit together, <laughs> you know, get my shit together and bounce back to the city. But that didn't happen. I ended up staying nine, almost nine years in that time. Somehow along the way, an opportunity opened up to work with my community's substance abuse treatment center. The visioning for a Cafe Gojo was born through all of those experiences, man. And at that point, that's when you meet me at Gather. Just when I began to start working about a year at Rainbow Treatment Center, and I've been there four years now. So it's something that I couldn't have scripted or didn't plan, but it was something I always wanted to. As I grew up, man, that's it's what my heart told me I needed to do and wanted to do something creative and cool and just fucking dope, you know, like seriously, like there's no other way to to communicate it. Cause like the street life, the skateboarding life, the music influences I have, the, the real rebellious nature of youth and, and how that energetic experience molds us as adults and how, if we don't emotionally mature, we can be held back by that and the grief of letting that go and what to keep and then addiction work and recovery work it is blood and guts trench work you know it is on the ground dealing with all forms of violence and depression and suicidality and combine that with culinary arts and creativity there's hope in life and food you know offer that dude i do these cooking groups right where you teach a whole group of adult men that are rough and tough ass apaches or natives and put them in a class and teach them how to make an omelet for the first time it is fucking magic (laughs) (laughs) what's what's magic about it what happens in that room just intense vulnerability like seriously like and vulnerability is where change happens right it's out of our comfort zone there's you know number one i demonstrate it i say okay this is nonverbal communication and i demonstrate all the steps and then i start talking about when i'm going to cook now and then they have to pay attention. They have to watch. And then I have to say, all right, now this is how you do it. You add the eggs. You kind of stir it. And you cook the egg. You flip the pan. You do a little bit. Then right here, this is the this is the moment of truth. And I flip without a without a spatula, right? And I flip it. I say, all right, now looks easy, right? 
that's how you think recovery is, man. Recovery looks easy, but a lot of us just talk a good game. You just say, yeah, I got all the right words. Get me off probation, you know, get me a lighter sentence, get me, you know, blah, blah, blah. Can my wife take me back or get my job back? You can talk your way out of some stuff, but can you actually behaviorally follow through? So say, all right. And I got like 10 guys into this group, right, in my classroom. And I, then I just kind of throw it, drop it on them. So, all right, you guys are going to do this. And they're like, oh, man, no, no. You know? <laughs> and they're like, shit. I was like, no, man, you're going to do it. That's what recovery is about, man. It's all new experiences. You have to be vulnerable and create new experiences because we're wired for trauma and chaos. Now we got to rewire for health and stability and good things, man. So I had them all line up. I make I have this like fake like omelet that they practice flipping. And one guy stand, you know, they get up in front of the class first. They're in confronting their stage fright. They get up and they're they're standing there and one guy's flipping it, looking like a fool, kind of, you know what I mean? He's standing there. The other guy's trying to mix his eggs. And, you know, I mean, not looking like a fool, but looking humorous, you know, looking vulnerable. The other guy, with my coaching, I say, okay, this is just like recovery. It's new as hell. It's scary. Maybe you've done it before. Maybe you know how. Maybe you, you know, have all these preconceived notions about it. But trusting the process is trusting my instruction. So I'm going to walk you through it. I'm not going to do it for you but you have to just follow my directions and they do it. They go along, crack the eggs, do the process. And then when it comes down to the flip that that swirling the egg flat in the pan and getting ready for the flip the first time, that's like the super bowl winning field goal kick, man. Slow motion. That omelet flips. I don't think I've ever done it successfully, <laughs> but seriously, they get it. The whole group just erupts. Yeah. yeah. And that moment, this, Possibly violent, possibly afraid, you know, person battling addiction has achieved this benchmark just by cooking an omelet. And their peers are there cheering them on. Some people stand up and and they all go through it. Some of them drop it. Some of them, most of, most of them get it, you know, but it's the process of trusting it and not giving up. And so when you, when you get to see that, it's just real. It's so cool and it's so humbling and it's so powerful. And that's what I like about this, you know, it, it, it pushes fine dining way out to the nowhere, pushes all the chefiness out there and you're dealing with, you know, people on a, on a, on a whole different level. And it just makes cooking real, you know what I mean? And puts it in their hands and hopefully they keep it forever. And I've had people come up to me on the street and say, Hey man, I still cook omelets or Hey man, I grill <laughs> vegetables, man. You know, that's nice. And yeah. it's so cool. You know, I just, I just hope I can help. Guys, be more responsible dads and help people be more responsible parents and introduce them to new foods. That's the way I like it. And that's how my work has kind of culminated to where it's at today, you know? Is this what you mean by restorative indigenous food practices? Is it related to to your work here with substance abuse and recovery? Yes, it is. And I don't want it to be just inclusive to addiction work because... For marginalized communities and uh, people of color and indigenous communities, we're all dealing with intergenerational grief and complex grief. Um, We're all dealing with uh, intergenerational traumas in in America and globally, but more so in America uh, because of the history of systemic racism and oppression. And as our population grows now and the census anticipates that by 2050 and 2030 in some parts of the United States, um, minority is going to be the majority. So 
we're at this uh, point in our generation where we have this really amazing opportunity to begin to shift and create our own narratives, shift and create our own modalities, um, shift and create paradigms and, and talk about power dynamics and how resources are distributed, you know, eradicate the term food desert. And so restorative indigenous food practices is kind of a I hope that it can be an inclusive way to uh, an inclusive modality that can help people to see that you don't have to be suffering from addiction to maximize its use, that you can understand. And there's different levels of how we can apply it from everyday school gardens to, you know, art programs that do food projects to professional cooking, to cooking at schools, to making food more visible. You know what I mean? Because I think that's that's one of the most critical goals that that I set out to do with the cafe is that, you know, it's an old gas station on the end of town. And with all of the typical health disparities that people just love to talk about on the reservation, food is always out of sight, out of mind. And to boil down all that political, legal activism jargon and just make it straight to the point. We just want to keep native foods in sight, in mind, and let those really powerful community outliers decide for themselves and reconnect and remember food. Because food at its most primal form is so powerful. That's why our food memories are so powerful. It, it creates neurological connections in our brains. And that's why it's so powerful. They're rooted in our childhood. So, you know, I just, that's kind of how I hope that it all comes together. And I think that. Restorative Indigenous Food Practices is an approach to having an, an all-inclusive articulation for practitioners. I hope it evolves and I hope that it continues to grow because, you know, it, it's nothing new, but it's using different language to frame to frame what we've already known. Does it make sense? Yeah, that was a beautiful... I don't, how long was that? It was like 15 minutes. You made my job really easy because you just <laughs> were eloquently... <laughs> I didn't want to stop you. There's so much good stuff in there. I do have some questions about yeah. indigenous foodways and cultures. And I was talking to Sammy Genshaw about this a little bit. And I was a little embarrassed that I didn't think about how hard it might be to sustain a culture in a healthy way while losing access to one's food and just yeah. how important it is. And, and one of the things that I have noticed, I've been to powwows or tribal gatherings as a visitor before. And I've seen things like fry bread and Indian tacos. I think that's probably what most people think of. And I know there's like an entire continent's worth of foodways that are actually present within indigenous foodways. Where does someone look? Why don't we see more of it? Or am I looking in the wrong place? Oh, uh, well, you've been consuming indigenous foods since you were a kid. You know, it, it mm. 70% of the foods in the grocery store are indigenous foods with real deep historical scientific evidence behind them, you know, tomatoes, chocolate, chilies, corn, beans, squash, you know, sunchokes, you know, just a, a whole number of ingredients. America is built on indigenous foods as a world power. And so it's, it's the narrative, it's the historical narrative and the systematic oppression that tells a different story. Mm. So when you follow the foods and you follow the cultivars, the the botanical histories will tell the truth the migrational patterns of peoples and animals and plants will tell the truth the archaeological sciences will tell the truth of foodways and so um you know it, it's pretty neat in that way uh, so i think that 
it's really about providing the opportunity for people to identify indigenous foods and indigenous cultivars of the Americas. And from there, you begin to open up and you be, it begins to open up and you see that it's very micro regional, very much like the cuisines of Asia or India. And um, it can't be bulked into one category. Fry bread is definitely a part of our culinary history. It's like the brutality of the salt wars and the spice wars, right? There's the, the brutality of the Renaissance and all of these benchmarks that revolve around food and politics and religion in, in Europe. And we have that same legacy as indigenous peoples too. And we have the same iconic foods and ingredients as well. So I think we're in a generation that is recognizing that and some people shun it, some people embrace it, some people deal with it. Uh, for me, I look at it as a part of our culinary repertoire in our historical narrative. And I think it's just like anything else you consume in moderation. Is it so prevalent among indigenous peoples in North America because I imagine that it was probably what was available at the commissary or the the res store or what was issued by the government as just flour and sugar. And this is something that was available. Is that correct or am I misidentifying that? No, man, you're, you're absolutely correct. It's um, prison food. You know, after the the all of these acts of genocide and um, subjugation, the survivors of war had to be rounded up and put on reservations, which were originally prison camps. If you look at a map of the forts, military forts across America, almost every single one of them are in Indian territories or on reservations. My tribe still has Fort Apache. The Navajo Nation has Fort Defiance. Oklahoma has Fort Sill. All of these forts were to guard uh, settlers or guard settler colonialism from natives. So the prison food was the obvious, most inexpensive staples, like you just mentioned. And from there, the ingenuity grows. So that's why there's fry bread in Florida, Canada, Alaska, Cali, Great Plains, and here in Apacheria. You know, that legacy of colonization is, is probably um, best represented through that iconic food. And our resilience as Native peoples, we've added on our own humorous spin as a coping mechanism, I believe, because there's so many fun jokes and humorous connections and about fry bread. Um, there's a lot of nostalgia about it, but there's also a much bloodier story or story behind it. So it's sweet and sour for sure, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose one one reason we might see like less indigenous restaurants or something like that is like if you force people off their ancestral lands where they understand how the food works and the environment provides food and then they are dropped into a new environment which is oftentimes pretty pretty desolate and not very hospitable is that potentially one explanatory factor for why we're not seeing indigenous restaurants being being a thing to the extent that they might otherwise would be they're going to continue. We'll, we'll see a few native restaurants coming up soon. And um, but for the past, you know, 50 years, there's there's this dramatic change in our paradigms where I'm not a fluent Apache language or Navajo language speaker. My parents chose not to teach us fluent lang Navajo or lang Apache um, because they they recognized that we needed to be fluent in the English language to be able to build lives my mother and my father both uh, taken from the res and put on the Mormon placement program and both sent to Utah when they were children. And is that why your name is Nephi? I was going to ask you. Yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. And mm. they, they basically, they basically lived white until in their adolescence, you know? And so 
they they would return home and you know come back and but the recognition of that and then think about their parents their parents had to witness you know the the 20s and 30s and 50s right 20s 30s 40s and 50s and then their parents had to go through the early early 1900s and their parents had to go through the turn of the century so it's not very far away where it was very very dangerous to be white mountain apache or be navajo that is one of the reasonings and but also the access to knowledge the access to training the access to education even just being accepted out there as something you know as a person of color so it's a generational shift for sure and i don't think there's any quick fix but it's going to require a lot of us to really put in a lot of hard work and so i feel like that's why it's very been very difficult and also us as native communities i i feel like we are so focused on just surviving contemporary colonialism and all of the social ills attached that we're not restaurant cultures we don't have the time or the luxury to contemplate a fine dining opportunity in our in our communities nor do we have the resources we're too busy in perpetual grief right we're too busy in perpetual resilience we're too busy just maintaining ourselves to even begin contemplating these things so if we can create the opportunity to knowledge and education and reclaim this ancestral power that's in foods you know i think it'll be really cool i think if more people could see like i said that 70% of the foods in every american grocery store are in de- in fact native foods it would be it would change you know i love that reframe i've I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious after you say it, you're like, yeah, these are all sort of yeah indigenous foods that have, you know, become global, globally appreciated and are certainly staples for, mm-hmm. for North American eaters. How should someone support your work, Nephi? If someone wants to get involved, they're inspired by your story. Uh, how can someone help be involved, et cetera? Well, um, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty open to collaboration. Uh, again, I, I do my best to be authentic and build relationships on, uh, on, you know, ethics. And, um, I like to do creative food work. Um, I, I am a, I am a practitioner. I'm, you know, I'm a certified advanced relapse prevention specialist and a behavioral health tech. I um, got all these years of culinary training. So I can train other chefs. I can, you know, in the work that I do now, I can train chefs how to maximize their approach to food and cooking because the food industry is changing. There is a micro revolution happening in kitchens. We're detaching from the old abusive guard of classic of the classical method. And that's why I said American cuisine is transforming and, and maturing right now. So I'm open to, I'm open to collaboration in, in all of those fields and they can just reach out to me however they find me on the internet or, you know, social media, um, you know, on Instagram, I'm not too active on Facebook, but you can just look me up. Great. Links to all those things are in the show notes. And just to clarify too, are you referring to, I don't know, the Escoffier brigade system as being abusive or the relationship to ingredients or the notorious relationships of chefs to their underlings? What, what part of it do you single out as abusive or maybe all of it? All of it, man. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, the militaristic approach to the brigade system for whatever time frame worked. And I, I still believe that it can function. I still believe that it's still valuable and it still can work. It needs a reframe. And I think it comes down to the individuals in that structure and how they are trained. I definitely think that there's uh, a need for a psychological reframing for chefs. 
um, a really hardcore chin check, you know what I mean, to the ego. <laughs> and and to really realize the the behavioral potential, the, the opportunity for behavioral health in professional cooking, then, you know, we can really elevate it to the level of a profession beyond where it's at now. Um, there's, I think there's a lot of opportunities for change in those areas. And with, you know, you see all these superstar chefs now putting their, their fine dining in little plastic cartons to go, you know, just 11 months ago, they would have never dreamed of doing that. They would shoot down anyone that proposed to go items. You know, we would have, we would have, you know, barked and, you know, just been terrible to anyone that would have proposed what we're doing now. So the world has, the pandemic has forced us into a creative mode and it's forcing us to change, you know? So I definitely think there's a lot of room for development and there's other chefs talking about this too. Wow. Uh, I hope it changes for the better. That would certainly be good. If someone wanted to come actually eat your food, Cafe Gajot, it hasn't opened in my understanding due to the pandemic, but it's still scheduled to at some point open. Yes. Yeah. I hope that, you know, late summer, fall, we can be in operation at some capacity. Uh, we are about three and a half hours northeast of Phoenix. And one of my reasonings for turning down opportunities to go to the east or west coast was because, you know, kind of going back to those classical French, um, the French history of, of cuisine there in France was that if you wanted to get authentic cuisine of Lyon, you had to go to Lyon. You know, if you had to get cuisine on the on, on one of the rivers or one of the vineyards, you had to go way out there and out of the way to get it. And so, you know, we're way out of the way out in the res in northeastern Arizona. And so if you want to get a real authentic, you know, experience of us cooking, whether it fits your preconceived notion or not, you got to drive <laughs> all the way to the res, man. <laughs> Fly to Phoenix and drive to the res, you know? Well, I'm originally from Phoenix and, you know, where they're not pandemic uh, raging, I make it back there at least once or twice a year. And I will certainly be coming to visit you and eat your food as soon as it is safe, Nephi. Definitely, man. That's the best way to support. And also, you know, we've, there's a local farm and other really neat things to see. It's one of the most beautiful places in, in the American Southwest. Great. Links to all those things are in the show notes, links to gather, how you can watch it and support and thanks so much for being here, Nephi. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. And thank you, thank you for supporting the film. Please try to get it in schools and get it in curriculum. And, you know, because it's a microcosm. There are many other practitioners facing the same challenges. And keep cooking our way towards peace, man. <laughs> thanks. Yeah. So glad we got to hang out there with Nephi Craig. Thank you for being on the show, Nephi. So appreciate your time. And to close out this show, our third and final interview is with Sammy Jensaw of the Yurok people up there on the Klamath River in Northern California. Sammy is featured in Gather as well with his work with the Ancestral Guard. It's an interesting uh, nonprofit that works on transmitting some of this knowledge and foodways and, and ways of, of being and is also a fisherman, which this is the first time I've ever had someone call into the show from... Uh, like a beach cave. Uh, that's never happened. So thank you, Sammy, for really adding an additional layer sonically to the experience that is not present otherwise. Thanks so much for making time to come on the show and uh, hope you enjoy. Hey, Sammy. Hey, how's it going? I'm honored to be on here and have this conversation. Uh, we're right here at the Eden Spot on the mouth of the Klamath River. 
and it's, uh, it's right in the thick of eeling season. And so eels, they really provide a uh, subsidence in the wintertime. So that's what we're out here doing right now. What led to your participation in, in gather film and uh, how did that whole process work? What is gather about? Gather is a great introduction to what's going on in the country today. What are some of the problems that we are facing as you know, modern Americans? It's also a great way to open up a conversation to your family. I'm really thankful for the opportunity to be a part of Gather because it gave us the chance to share what we're doing on the Lower Klamath with the world. And I'm, I'm just grateful for that opportunity. What's happening with your people, the Yurok and on the Klamath River mouth has been fascinating to learn more about because I didn't know about the fish wars, which happened uh, on the Klamath River. So it sounds like what you're doing, there's a very clear line of continuity between the fish wars and what's happening now. Could you please give us some context on what the fish wars were and where you are now? Yeah. So the fish wars, we were technically one of the last people go to the war with the United States back in the 70s. They actually had tanks on our river system. They had people in flat jackets and machine guns. They're sinking people's boats. They just absolutely hated the fact that indigenous people were fishing when they told us that we were not allowed to fish where people have been fishing for thousands of years. So the people who stood up for our rights back in the 70s, these weren't high, uh, there were highly respected elders, but a lot of these people were young people. They were young people who was tired of the systematic oppression that was put on our people and they're willing to put everything on the line to make sure that their children and grandchildren didn't have to face the same thing and i'm thankful they did that because we are facing battles today but if it wasn't for what they did in the 70s we wouldn't be where we are today Mm. and that's why you are trying so hard to carry on as a fisherman to pass those traditions on to some of your peers to pass those skills on you see this as part of a continuity. I am the fisherman first before all things. I've been in a boat since before I could walk. You know, I've been wow. on the river most of my life. And, you know, I've grew up right here floating in a wooden drift boat, just like my grandpa did, just like his grandpa did. And the same place, drinking from the same creeks. I'm thankful for that opportunity because more and more I realize that less and less indigenous people get that opportunity. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to do the same thing. I'm trying to make sure that one day that I'm not needed, that we won't need activists, we won't need people like me because we'll all be too busy catching fish and learning our elders and doing the things that make us indigenous and helping heal our piece of the earth and teaching the people around us how to do the same because in today's climate, in today's world, if you're not adopting indigenous values, reciprocity with the earth, then there's no way we're going to be able to sustain life on earth for human beings much longer. What's it been like working with younger Yurok's right now? Are they, or I guess you could even just broaden that out to indigenous people generally. Are people generally interested in reclaiming these older food ways, learning some things that have been lost or recreating them? Is this a general trend you've noticed? Yeah, because the opportunity didn't exist because it was taken away from our people. And because our connection to the land is what allows us to you know, create these healthy opportunities. And younger people, when you get that taken away from you before you're born, before it's able to um, be taught to you, 
then you grow up and you think it's something the matter with you. And it sets this, this kind of bar that whether you're traditional or you're not traditional and you have to figure out which world to live in. And it's really hard. It's a complex system that we're living in through this federal system on state lands within our traditional territories. So all these policies and stuff, you have to learn at a very young age. You have to harvest for your families and to feed your people because that's kind of our responsibility, you know, to go get basket materials for your grandma. You have to wake up that day and say, you know what? I'm willing to risk my life. I'm willing to risk my freedom in order to carry on these traditions. And that's a huge responsibility to put on children and a younger generation of people. So we see a lot more people gaining access because we see the political structure changing. We see more people in the office that look like us, that talk like us, that acknowledge the land like we do. And that's an amazing thing because um, what affects people in Southern California, the same laws affect us up here. What is being indigenous mean to you? I think people use the term sometimes, and I'm not sure that I could really define it in a discreet kind of way. Yeah. So indigenous, you have to think about like, what does that mean? You know, I, we have to ask ourselves that too, all the time, every day. And for me, it's from understanding that our oldest relation that we have is right here beneath our feet. This is something that's living, breathing, and we share that connection. And we understand that we are coming from this place on earth and our ancestors over thousands and thousands of years have laid out a plan for us to continue to offer these healthy opportunities to our children, fishing, hunting, managing these lands, you know, applying these daily sciences to our life and allowing our future generations to prosper. It's not an accident. It just didn't happen. It was, um, it's a system systematic within indigenous communities. And that's what got disrupted. So when I say I'm indigenous, I don't have a choice. There is no thing you can do to become more indigenous. You have to acknowledge your connection with this earth. You have to acknowledge your ancestors' connection with this earth. And unfortunately, a lot of people's ancestors are connected to some gruesome tales, some gruesome events that happen, greed and despair. And it's okay. You have to acknowledge these things to truly love who you are and understand where you need to be at in this place. These are the things that we need to acknowledge and say, yes, that's happened. And not live in fear of it, but don't let it stop you from embracing the fact that we need to take care of this earth and the people who have been monitoring the ways to do that have been indigenous people. It's not too late to create unity between everybody in America. So we have a common goal of making sure that our children are safe and our children have a livable climate. Yeah, that's beautiful. And uh, I hope we're able to learn from your work and the work of many people working on climate and I hope we're able to pull it off. I mentioned most people listening for me, particularly, I don't even know what's the correct term for how I would identify you know, broadly of European extract, but a big mix. I don't have a single group of people I can point to as my ancestors. And I think that might be part of the problem for a lot of people like me is I don't actually think of myself as having ancestors in that kind of way that I can point to. And I don't have land that I can do that with either. My family has always moved around a lot, both within the United States. And I imagine even before that, what should someone like me do to incorporate some of this wisdom, 
without sort of adopting a sort of like faux appropriative indigenous stance. Yeah, you're in luck because I can answer this question like never before. And the reason why is because I took a 21 DNA test, wanted me DNA test. And it said that I'm part of Zapatista. And I've never been more excited about anything else. Wow. <laughs> and so like seeing that connection and seeing how people feel about, I don't know anything about that. I don't know anything, but here's this test that tells me I have some DNA reference over here. And I don't necessarily trust these tests, but you know, just having that feeling has given me the opportunity to have some insight. And what I'm thinking is that the best thing we could do is acknowledge who we are. Like you said, your people traveled, you've always traveled. Well, even in their travels, they've had to treat people right to get where they are. They did something right to make sure that you're living the life you're living. So if we can look back at, we don't have to know exactly where our roots touched down in the first you know, couple thousand years of the earth. All we really have to acknowledge is that what happened in the past there's a great chance that it's going to happen again. And the same things that were affecting your parents and their grandparents are going to be affecting you. And a great example is that as the Spanish flu. Imagine if there was knowledge and culture and traditions passed down to people on how to live throughout a pandemic. Then, you know, a lot more people's lives would have been saved. That's exactly what happened in indigenous communities. We've taken this accumulated knowledge over generations and passed it down to our children in a way that can be broken down and used in a modern context. And it's these forms of living, it's this understanding that makes us indigenous. So there's hope then for people who don't have an indigenous background to sort of feel like they actually belong someplace, act like they care about it, act like they're here to stay. Maybe that's part I, of the answer. I think it's like, you don't have to be indigenous to care about the land because when we say like, you know, there's hope for people, even though they're not indigenous, it's no, the same thing. It's the same thing. Like what we say is there's a restorative revolution happening right now. And when we offer services, we don't just offer services to tribal families. We offer services to all families living within the territories of our ancestors. And that's because we need to do that as community members in rural Northern California. These river communities have a lot of strength and endurance. And we couldn't do that if we were just serving indigenous people. So for us, being indigenous, it's a responsibility. And in modern America, we are constantly getting pushed under a minority status. So you'll hear that Native Americans are a minority, even with that something else that happened on the news. We're just constantly pushed into a minority. But when you look at it, when you truly look at what's going on here in America, look at all the indigenous people from all over the world that are flocking here right now. You know, by the end of the century, there'll be more indigenous people living in America than there will be people of European descent. So... Indigenous people have always been here. The European standard has always been cut off to them because they're Indian or they're Asian or they're Chinese or they're whatever. But in reality, it's indigenous people who built America and it's indigenous people who are keeping the American dream alive. So acknowledging your roots doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be indigenous. I mean, I'm part Irish, you know, so I acknowledge that to the fullest. I'm proud of that as well. You people don't believe me. <laughs> my great grandfather was the irish prince but you know that's on them <laughs> that's good that's that's some great advice if people want to follow your work if they want to support what you're doing where can they learn more get involved all of those good things the most important thing you could do is connect to the local indigenous people around you and if you can't do that feel free to reach out to me 
and I'll try to connect you in the best ways possible. You can always support the work we're doing because every dollar that we get into our organization, we put directly into creating a Victorious Gardens initiative for new mothers and families. But also you can check us out at naturerightscouncil.com. We have Ancestral Guard on Facebook and also on Instagram. And also if you want to support Indigenous youth here in Northern California, we have this thing called fishbonetradeco.com. Everybody helped develop our program, put in on making jewelry that is from Northern California that we harvest and cut and make every beat ourselves. We do it and we offer that at fishbonetradecompany.com. Links to all those things are in the show notes. I have to say, Sammy, that you sound, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you sound generally optimistic about the chances for humanity to turn things around, both for indigenous folks and the planet as a whole. Am I reading too much into your tone or do you actually feel optimistic? That's way reading too much into the tone, man. Um, I have no trust in humanity. (laughs) (laughs) You seem like kind of like a joyful, kind of like you have like a buoyancy to you I'm picking up on. Yeah, my whole life, my grandma spent her whole life trying to fight for indigenous health care. My other grandma spent her whole life fighting for indigenous education system in California. I mean, I'm so happy. you know, and that's, and that's the thing is like, we're just continuing that. I'm continuing to provide a healthy opportunity for my people today. So everything that in our programs and our services, we're trying to make people's lives better today. And one of the things that is not going to help anybody is feeding into this socioeconomic depression that's been set upon our people. And, you know, we're trying to reduce the symptoms of socioeconomic depression by addressing the micronutrient deficiencies within these. And that's something that we just found out that we're doing by a partnership with UC Davis, and they're teaching us how to collect data. So I'm thankful to be here. I'm thankful to be alive because so many people, we're less than a fraction of a percent of the original people. I'm part of that fraction. So I feel blessed. I feel responsible. I love it. Yeah, that's great to hear. Well, thanks so much for sharing all that with me, Sammy. I'm really happy to have you on. I'm really happy you were featured in Gather. The work that you're doing is super interesting and important. And uh, thanks for being here. Yeah, and please look out on, on YouTube. We also have a little short clip of our gardening work that we're doing called Guardians of the River. Guardians of the River. Okay, links to that are in the show notes too. You should click on those things, check them out. And uh, yeah. Okay, that wraps us up. That is the show for now. Uh, Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this experiment with form. Typically, we do something a little more naturalistic and straightforward. I think it's fun to broaden out how we tell new kinds of stories. This was an experiment. I think it came out pretty nicely. I hope you do too. Definitely check out the film Gather. I thought it adds a lot to the regenerative agriculture conversation that is not always present and should be. So I hope you check that film out. Link is in the show notes if you'd like to support it, rent it, et cetera. Thanks so much for listening. And if you like the show, if you could please uh, tell a friend, send this to a friend, uh, give us a great rating and review on iTunes. Also, Apple Podcasts, same thing, different name, uh, depending on when you started using it pretty much. Thank you for listening. Help us get the word out to more people. And thank you again so much for your time and support. Well, thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and or Stitcher. It really helps us a lot to get this content to a wider audience. If you think what we're doing is useful, interesting, fun, hopefully all three, we'd certainly appreciate your rating and review. You can keep up with Nori at nori.com where there is a newsletter. That's nori.com slash subscribe. 
there's podcasts, there's a whole bunch else, or you can send us an email at podcast at nori.com. We are also now on Patreon at patreon.com slash nori podcasts if you'd like more content, engagement, and community. And thank you so much for your support.